I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 13. If you're just joining us this morning for the first time, we are journeying through the book of Genesis, one one passage at a time. And uh, this morning we come to the 13th chapter, and I'll go ahead and read the entire chapter. Holy Scripture says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's holy word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that that this word would dwell richly in our hearts. I pray that you would use this word to illumine the eyes of our hearts and to change the way that we see. Pray that your Holy Spirit would come and do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with an overview of the passage. In, In chapter 12, Abram had first entered the land of Canaan from the north. He started in Shechem and then he moved south to 
Bethel and Ai, and then he went further south to the Negev. And then in chapter 12, verse 10, we learn that there was a severe famine, and so Abram went down to Egypt, and as we looked at last week, kind of made a mess of things down there, but but now we're in chapter 13, and Abram and Sarai, his wife, they're reversing course, so now they're coming up from Egypt back to the Negev in southern Canaan, and then as you get into verse uh, into verse 3, Abram continues to move, move northward, and he ends up going back to the hill country between Bethel and Ai, where he had formerly pitched his tent and built an altar to the Lord, and there he goes and calls upon the name of the Lord. Chapter 13 concludes with Abram, Abram in Hebron, which is about equidistant from Bethel and Ai to the north and the Negev to the south. We also learn that Abram had great possessions. Abram acquired possessions during his time in Haran, Genesis 12.5, and he obtained additional possessions, sheep, oxen, male donkeys, and camels, during his time in Egypt, Genesis 12.16. Genesis 13.2 now says that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. I want to say something briefly uh, about, uh, about wealth. We don't, have, we don't have time to launch into a big study of wealth at this particular moment. But it is important to say that the Bible does not view wealth negatively. Sometimes we make the mistake of locating a problem in the wrong place. The problem commonly associated with wealth is not wealth, but the love of wealth, preoccupation with wealth, anxiety over wealth, the tendency to covet and the refusal to be open-handed and generous. If we make worldly wealth the treasure of our hearts, then the Bible says that we are idolaters and will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if, if God is the treasure of our hearts, then we will be able to handle both abundance and scarcity. That's what the Apostle Paul taught us when he said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. If God is the treasure of our hearts, then we will use what we have, whether we have much or little, makes no difference. We will use what we have to demonstrate that God is our treasure and that His kingdom has captured our hearts. Use your earthly resources to pursue God's kingdom goals. Worship God, not stuff. And that's what Abram does. He worships the Lord. He had built an altar to the Lord Genesis 12.8, between Bethel and Ai on his first trip through Canaan, as we we, uh, learned in chapter 12. Now in chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, we're told that Abram returned to that place between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. With Abram calling upon the name of the Lord in the hill country between Bethel and Ai in verse 4, So keep verse 4 in mind. And then later, at the end of the chapter, building an altar to the Lord in Hebron, we get another picture of the fact that worship 
Worshiping the Lord was the regular and defining feature of Abram's life. Is worshiping the Lord the regular and defining feature of your life? Of course, worshiping the Lord doesn't mean that you don't have problems. In Genesis 12.10, the faithful worshiper Abram faced severe famine. And now, in chapter 13, Abram, the faithful worshiper, faces an organizational logistics problem. Abram's organizational logistics problem involved his relationship with his nephew, Lot. Lot's father, Haran, had died while the whole family was back in Ur of the Chaldeans, Genesis 11:28. When Abram departed from Ur, his nephew, Lot, accompanied him, Genesis 11:31. When Abram departed from Haran, after having settled there for a while, we are told that Abram Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son. That was Genesis 12.5. As we enter chapter 13, we realize that Lot had continued on as a regular traveling companion of Abram. As it says in verse 1, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him. But as we look at verses 2 to 7, we learn that Abram's and Lot's respective households were clashing. And by households, I mean household organizations. Because what is in view is an extensive organization of nomadic people. Some attached to Abram and some attached to Lot. We already learned that Abram was very rich. Now in Genesis 13.5, we learn that Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Now we know that Abram had an extensive entourage of people around him. Abram had acquired people, presumably servants, in Haran, Genesis 12.5, and Aaron, uh, Abram obtained both male and female servants in Egypt, Genesis 12.16. And jumping ahead to Genesis chapter 14, we see there that Abram was able to pull together a a fighting force of 318 trained men who had been born in his house, Genesis 14, 14. So Abram must have had, at the very least, several hundred people who were a part of his household organization. And Lot also had a number of people, we don't know how many, in his household organization. And as it happened, Abram's household and Lot's household, they're trying to work the same land, and things were getting stressful. The relationship between Abram and Lot may have been relatively stable, but the relationship between Abram's people and Lot's people was getting volatile. Verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. That last bit about the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelling in the land shows us that Abram and Lot were outsiders, They were foreigners as they were traveling through the land of Canaan, and they they would have had to find open space areas free from Canaanite control that they could subsist off of. 
But these two household farm organizations, you could say, could no longer make do on the same acreage. Abram's men and Lot's men were getting on each other's nerves. There was strife and envy, conflict and discontent. So Abram, being a man of peace and wanting to maintain cordial relations with his nephew, didn't want strife to characterize his relationship with Lot, didn't want strife to characterize the relationship between his people and Lot's people. And so Abram says to Lot, for we are kinsmen, verse 8, and kinsmen and extended family members ought to do their very best to uh, avoid conflict and to preserve peace and goodwill in their relationships with one another. And Abram takes the lead to promote goodwill and proposes this solution. Is not the whole land before you, Lot? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abram's guidance is simple enough, telling Lot to separate. If you go this way, I'll go that way. If you go that way, I'll go this way. Abram Abram was content to let Lot make the choice. And so as it happens, Lot scans the expanse of land to the east, the Jordan Valley, in the direction of Zoar, where there were a number of cities. And these cities of the valley included Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. With Lot's move to the east, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, basically remaining where he was, more or less. And after Lot had separated from Abram, the Lord spoke to Abram and made additional promises concerning the land. In response to the Lord's instruction and promise, Abram broke camp and hit the road, eventually settling by the oaks of Mamre. By the way, Mamre uh, is a man who became an ally of Abram, as it says in Genesis 14, 13. The oaks of Mamre were at Hebron. Hebron is part of a a region that will be eventually given to the tribe of Judah. And after he arrived in Hebron, Abram did what he had already done in Shechem, what he had already done in the hill country between Bethel and Ai. He built an altar to the Lord because worshiping the Lord was the regular and defining feature of Abram's life. That's the big picture. Now, with that big picture in mind, what I want to do is drill down into some details that provide us with a very important lesson for our walk with God. Genesis 13 shows us that there are two very different ways of seeing. There is the way of seeing with physical eyes exemplified by Lot, and there is the way of seeing with spiritual eyes as exemplified by Abram. Thus, if you saw the bulletin, I've titled this sermon, It's Time for an Eye Exam. Scripture administers this eye exam, and what will this examination reveal about the health of your eyes? The health or unhealth of your eyes The eyes of your heart sets the pace for your entire life. That's what Jesus taught us when he said in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full 
of darkness. As we subject our eyes to the gaze of Scripture, we may find that this lesson that we're about to consider may hit close to home. It may hit more close to home than some of the other negative examples that we have considered in the book of Genesis. For example, when we think about unrighteous Cain and unrighteous Lamech in Genesis chapter 4, or the wicked generation of Noah's day in Genesis chapter 6, or the proud men at Babel in Genesis chapter 11, perhaps you're you're apt to think, well, I'm certainly not like that. And perhaps, by God's grace, you aren't. Those people were exceedingly wicked. And it may well be the case that, by God's grace, you have kept your feet closer to the paths of righteousness. But here's the thing, and this is why this lesson may hit closer to home. The negative example in Genesis chapter 13 involves a man who was not exceedingly wicked. And reflecting upon Lot, we have to reckon with the fact that Lot was a righteous man. The Bible makes this very clear. How did Lot feel about dwelling in the region of Sodom, a place that was inhabited by men who were great sinners? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man, referring to Lot, as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. Lot was a righteous man with a righteous soul, and he had righteous grief over the unrighteousness that was all around him. And yet, in Genesis chapter 13, he makes a very poor choice. So what we have in verses 10 to 13 is a righteous man making a poor choice. Sometimes righteous people make poor choices. Sometimes true disciples get sloppy and settle down into places and rhythms that are unwise. And as we look at verses 10 to 13, I want you to see the anatomy of Lot's choice in order to encourage you not to go down that path. And then we're going to contrast verses 10 to 13 with verses 14 to 17, which teach us about the better way in which God calls Abram and us to live. So the lesson begins in verse 10. Remember, it's about the eyes. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. The reference to the garden of the Lord takes us back to the garden in Eden in Genesis chapter 2 that was watered by a river flowing out of Eden. And the reference to the land of Egypt reminds us that back in chapter 12, there was a severe famine in Canaan, but there was abundant provision in the land of Egypt. So Lot saw that the land of the east was abundant and beautiful, lush and luxuriant land that was well provided for and that showed great potential and promise. Now someone might ask, oh, what's wrong with that? 
the answer, of course, is that there is nothing wrong with that. The objective goodness of the land is not the problem. The problem is with Lot. Pay attention. He sees and assesses and decides for the land without considering the Lord's will and without taking into account the spiritual ramifications. And let me show you, this is a pattern that has been unfolding in the book of Genesis. Eve is exhibit number one. So when the woman, Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She saw that which was delightful to her eyes and took it for herself. The sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 are exhibit 2. Genesis 6-2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Whether or not you agree with my understanding that the sons of God refer to angels who were sinning grievously against the Lord in this act, whether you agree with me or not on that, it's very clear in the context of Genesis chapter 6 with words of judgment coming in verse 3 and then in verses, verses following. Clearly, whatever's going on there, is not good. And so, like Eve, the sons of God saw that which was attractive to their eyes and took it for themselves. Exhibit number three is the Egyptians. Genesis 12, verses 14 and 15. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman, Sarai, Abram's wife, was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Although Abram and Sarai bear guilt for misrepre misrepresenting themselves, that they were not married when they were married, the fact remains that the Egyptians also fell into the beauty trap. Like Eve in Genesis 3 and like the sons of God in Genesis 6, the Egyptians saw that which was very beautiful in their eyes and with Pharaoh's consent took her into Pharaoh's house. And now Lot becomes exhibit 4. He saw that which was captivating to his eyes and he took it for himself. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Lot and the Egyptians and the sons of God and Eve all serve as examples of what the Apostle John warned about when he said, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 1 John 2.16 Re Remember, the problem is not the beauty of the thing itself. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was part of God's good creation. And so there's no reason to doubt that it was in fact a delight to the eyes. The daughters of man really are attractive. Sarai really was a beautiful woman. And the Jordan Valley really was well watered like the garden of the Lord. The problem isn't the beauty of the thing itself. The problem is to see things without considering the Lord's will. To see things without considering the spiritual ramifications. To see things without inquiring into the spiritual character of what is involved. 
Lot should have taken a closer look at things. He should have sought to see the Jordan Valley and the cities of the valley from God's perspective. If Lot had slowed down and sought to test and govern his visual impulses by the wisdom of God, then he would have had to reckon with the fact that there was great wickedness in the people who lived in the cities of the valley. The end of verse 10 foreshadows the judgment that will soon fall when it says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and some of the nearby cities is recounted in Genesis chapter 19. Why did these cities meet with complete destruction? Well, Genesis 13, 13 tells us, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot saw the physical wonders of the valley, but he didn't see the spiritual wickedness of the cities. Lot saw the desirability of the place, but didn't see the abominations of its people. Lot didn't realize that he was choosing to settle in a region that was about to be decimated by the judgment of God. Lot saw the Jordan Valley and desired its beauty without taking the spiritual ramifications into account. Now, you and I, as believers, are more than able to fall into the same trap that Lot fell into. A young, man, a young Christian man visits a college campus that is on his short list of colleges that he might attend. And he's captivated by the historic buildings and the symmetrical and well-landscaped layout and the beautiful central courtyard and the generous scholarship offer and the success rate of its graduates. Oh, this is good. And that's what he sees. But he does not consider how the school might impact his spiritual life. A young Christian woman falls in love with a man. He's handsome, articulate, makes good money. And that's what she sees. But she doesn't ask the hard question about whether he is the sort of man who will be a faithful spiritual leader. When Christian people are looking for a church to become part of, they might be entirely won over by the aesthetics of the sanctuary the atmosphere of the worship service, the sound of the music, the length of the service, the socioeconomic level of those who were gathered there, the number of programs that are tailored to their interests. And that's people being foolish. They see what is pleasing to the eye or pleasing to the senses. They do not discern what is doctrinally sound and spiritually beneficial. Christian, Christians can choose a set of friends not because they share your Christian commitments, but because they are perceived as fun, cool, creative. Christians can accept an exciting new career opportunity or make a business deal, not because it is consistent with God's calling upon your life, but because of the economic and social benefits. They seem too difficult to turn down. Christians can justify movies or shows or other forms of entertainment, not because they are wholesome and edifying, but because you appreciate their artistic quality. Now, is my point that artistic quality, economic benefit, and fun personalities have no value? Of course not. What I'm trying to, to say is that you are foolish 
when, like Lot, all you can see and care about are the outward allurements and external appeals. You see the artistic quality, but not the moral compromise. You see the economic benefit, but not the spiritual detriment. You see the cool personality, but not the negative influence that this person might have upon your life. Are you learning to govern your visual impulses by the wisdom of God? Are you learning to weigh character and substance instead of being so easily captured by superficial considerations? Are you learning to see with God's perspective? Four words in verse 11 capture the wrong-headedness of Lot's decision. Lot chose for himself. Is that how you want to live? Do you want to choose for yourself the people you hang out with and the places you go and the things you have and do without taking the Lord's will into account? Is that what you want? Let Lot be to you a cautionary tale. Lot chose for himself a valley full of cities, full of wicked men who were going to be obliterated by the judgment of God. Lot chose for himself. But Abram, Abram most emphatically did no such thing. Abram did not choose for himself the land of Canaan. Instead, God is the one who chose Canaan for Abram. Now, let's go to a different example. Okay, so Lot lifted up his eyes and saw, verse 10, remember those words. Lot was looking through his own pair of glasses. Now, in verse 14, the Lord invites Abram to lift up his eyes and look through a very different pair of glasses. Thus, Abram's way of seeing, verse 14, is set up in deliberate contrast to Lot's way of seeing in verse 10. Notice that verses 14 to 17 say nothing about the natural desirability or lushness or potential of the land. The Jordan Valley was well-watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. That's high praise. There is no comparable statement about the land of Canaan in verses 14 to 17. Whether or not Canaan is the equal of the Jordan Valley in terms of natural beauty is beside the point. What makes Canaan special is not its natural advantages, but the fact that God decided to give it as a gift to Abram. Now here's the key point that I want you to see about how Abram is supposed to see, and frankly, how you and I are supposed to see. Abram is supposed to see with his ears attentive to God's words. God invites us to see the world out there within the framework of his words and promises and perspectives spoken to us. And why do I say this? Because Abram's act of seeing in verses 14 to 17, was initiated by and generated by the Word of God. Think about it. Verse 14 begins, The Lord said to Abram. The Lord's words to Abram begin in the middle of verse 14 and run all the way to the end of verse 17. Divine words are cascading over Abram's soul. And it is those words that are supposed to shape the way that Abram sees 
the land. And this stands in sharp contrast to Lot's way of seeing. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw as a response to Abram's very pragmatic counsel about how to fix the spat between their two peoples. But Lot's seeing was never governed by the Lord's perspective, never governed by God's words. But Abram's seeing was generated and governed by the Word of God. What did the Lord say to Abram? First, the Lord told Abram to look from the place where he was in every direction, north, south, east, west. Second, the Lord promised to give all the land that he could see to Abram and Abram's offspring forever. Ironically, it might have even included the land that Lot had chosen for himself. Presumably, Abram was able to see the same thing that Lot saw. Third, the Lord promised to make Abram's offspring as numerable as the dust of the earth, verse 16. And fourth, the Lord invited Abram to walk through the land and discover the land that would be given to him, verse 17. Abram's ability to see the land for what it was depended entirely on trusting God's words. At that particular moment, Abram had a wife and no kids, no offspring, no descendants. Further, at that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. But those factors notwithstanding, the Lord invited Abram to see the land for what it would be. Namely, the title to the land would be given to Abram and his offspring. At the same time, the Lord invited Abram to behold a future in which his descendants were filling the land from north to south and from east to west. So, question. Do do you decide, do, do you see what you decide to see according to the flesh, according to physical realities and physical probabilities, according to the wisdom of sinful man in the light of the here and now of earthly treasures that will eventually be destroyed? Is that how you see? Or do you see what the Lord invites you to see according to the Spirit, according to divine realities and divine promises, according to the wisdom of God in light of the treasure, treasures in the heavens that will last forever? Do you see what you decide to see in light of the words and ways of men, or do you see what God invites you to see in light of the words and ways of God? Can you imagine what would happen in our lives, our families, our congregation, if we bid farewell to the visual impairment that afflicted Lot, and instead we resolved to take God at His word and let His words shape the way that we see and hope, and walk, and worship. You see, the natural man is impressed by external adornment, the braiding of hair, expensive jewelry, fashionable clothing. But a spiritual man sees with God's perspective and knows that the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in God's sight. 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. The natural man is impressed by rich people making large donations to God's house. But a spiritual man sees with God's perspective and understands that a poor widow 
who out of her poverty contributes all that she has, which happens to be two small copper coins, has put in more than all of the wealthy contributors. Mark 12, 42 to 44. The natural man is impressed by a city known for great learning and intellectual achievement. But a spiritual man sees with God's perspective, which is why when the Apostle Paul found himself in the great city of Athens, that great intellectual center, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Acts 17, 16. The natural man is impressed by cultural power and political clout. But a spiritual man sees with God's perspective. And the truth of the matter is that the Lord's embattled and suffering church, consisting of the world's nobodies and often despised by the world, are dearly loved by the Lord, precious in His sight, the apple of His eye, His cherished bride. The natural man is impressed by charisma and strength and outward appearance, but a spiritual man sees with God's perspective. And the truth of the matter is that the very one who had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53, 2, and who was rejected by men, 1 Peter 2, 4, is in fact chosen and precious in the sight of God, 1 Peter 2, 4. It matters how you see. It matters that you learn to see, as God would have you see, from his perspective, and shaped by His promise. In the final analysis, just think about where Lot's foggy vision led him in contrast to where the Lord's gracious promise led Abram. Lot's foggy vision led him to live among the wicked in a place that would be destroyed. But the Lord's promise to Abram is highlighted by the word forever in verse 15. You see, the clock is ticking for the place that Lot chose for himself. The clock is always ticking for that which you have chosen for yourself. But there is no end, no end to the expansiveness and duration and glory and wonder of that which God chooses to give you. Do you see it? There's the expansiveness of place, northward, southward, eastward, westward, as far as the eye can see. There's the expansiveness of time for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. There's the expansiveness of holy offspring. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. The identity of Abram's innumerable offspring can be examined from different angles, but ultimately, Abram's innumerable offspring cannot be equated with his physical descendants. Instead, Abram's innumerable offspring are those who share Abram's faith. As it says in Galatians chapter 3, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Genesis 3, 26 and 29. So, here's the upshot of the Lord's promise to Abram. In stark contrast to Lot settling into sin city that was going to be destroyed in Lot's lifetime, 
the Lord's promise to Abraham envisions the Lord's people in the Lord's place forever. Not the Jordan Valley, but the place of God's choosing. Not in the temporary company of those who were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, but in the great intergenerational company of Abram's descendants, the children of promise, the innumerable sons and daughters who possess the same faith as Father Abraham. Not a city project that ends in destruction, and every city that the Lord is not watching over will be destroyed, but a secure dwelling place forever. The Lord's promise is that the Lord's people will dwell in the Lord's place forever. And that promise, sealed by the blood of the Messiah, is worth everything. And everything else is worth little by comparison. Brothers and sisters, be resolved to see the world through the lens of God's Word. Be determined to see whatever you see in submission to what God has said. Let God's Word govern what you see and how you see it. Join Abram in cherishing the promise that the Lord's believing people will enjoy an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom that God has prepared for His people from the foundation of the world. Abram, after all, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. And we, as Abram's sons and daughters, through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have also set our sights on the same glorious city that God is preparing for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would heal the eyes of our hearts. We are weak and fragile and fickle creatures who often are just chasing the wrong thing. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would discover the freedom and the joy and the promise that comes from letting your words shape the way that we see and the way that we live pray that you would take this congregation and cause it to bear great fruit in the Oxford Hills, to stand forth as a testimony that one day you're going to bring all of your believing people together around the throne of God, and we will sing to God and to the Lamb forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.